First Thessalonians 5. Great section of scripture before us tonight. So let's pray together. First Thessalonians 5. Father, we thank you that in you we are unshakable because of your character. You're our foundation. You're our cornerstone and our rock. And Lord, uh, tonight as it's a final presidential debate, we know that all things are in your hands and you raise up one leader and set another aside. And as we'll look in your word tonight, we thank you that we can look forward to your reign, Jesus, the day of the Lord. And so, God, would you stir us tonight to be fully alive to you. We just ask for your Holy Spirit to bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have this reoccurring dream that goes back to when I was a youth pastor. I did youth ministry here at Rocky Mountain Calvary for about five years. And I started having this dream uh, as a youth pastor, and it's continued, that the youth were coming over uh, to our house. And they would come over like twice a month. Uh, we would have a little home fellowship at our house. And in, in my dream, they, the kids were coming over. The, the high school students were coming over. The junior high students were coming over. But I wasn't prepared, you know. And I, so I wake up in this dream. And, you know, in my dream, I'm not, I'm not clothed. You know, I'm in my boxers. And, and so I know that's not a pretty image, but that's the dream. And so I, I always go and I, I get dressed and before you know it, I'm sleepwalking. Like the, the dream's so, so vivid that I'm sleepwalking and I'm in the closet, I'm getting dressed. And at this point, Amber wakes up and she usually asks me, like, what are you doing? And she'll tell you, it's the one time I get really argumentative, like when I'm, when I'm sleepwalking. And so I'll start fully having a conversation with her, like, the kids are coming over. She's like, what kids? The high school kids are coming over. The, the junior high kids are coming over. Like, I got to get dressed, you know? And this will go on for a little bit of time. And then something in my mind will, will kind of trigger, like, this isn't quite right. Like, something is not quite right with all this. And I'll realize, okay, I, I'm sleepwalking. But in this whole process, I never fully wake up. You know, and I'm having a conversation. I'm having these vivid thoughts. I get fully clothed. You know, sometimes I'm even downstairs. Amber's waiting for the day when I walk out the front door doing one of these things, uh, sleepwalking. Uh, and yet yeah, I'm asleep. And you would, you would say to me, if you saw me sleepwalking, that you'd go, wake up. Like, you need to wake up. And what we look at in our text is a challenge from the Apostle Paul to wake up. That spiritually we can be saved, that we can be God's child, but be asleep. So we have spiritual sleepwalking, and God wants us to be fully awake. In this section of scripture, we're going to be challenged to look at the times and the seasons of the coming of Jesus Christ. And then this chapter and this book ends with some strong exhortations from the Holy Spirit of, of how to live our lives. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. We're in a season change, aren't we? Even though it doesn't quite feel like it temperature-wise, we know that winter is coming. Fall is here. There's less daylight. The trees have changed color. It's a season. As we go into winter and you head towards spring, you'll start to get more daylight. And you realize we're coming out of winter and we're going to have a few spring blizzards, some nice days, and then bam, we're into summer for about four weeks, and then we're right back into, into fall, right? 
But, but the weather is letting us know. There's, there's times and there, there's seasons. And this section of scripture, if you remember, is talking about the day of the Lord. It's talking about God rapturing his church, the church being caught up. And Paul says here in verse 1 that I don't need to go over the times and seasons of my coming. No one knows the day or the hour of the return of Jesus Christ. If anyone tries to tell you differently, they're contradicting what Jesus had said. Jesus says only the Father knows the day and the hour. But there's a lot of things in Scripture that let us know the signs of the second coming of Jesus Christ. The times, the seasons leading up to his return. And as we'll see, we're challenged by the Lord that the coming of Christ would not take us off guard. Because we're reading the signs. We're we're reading the times. We're reading the seasons. A great place to study this, if you want to study it further, is right down Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus says, these things will happen before my second coming. One that doesn't get quite as much publicity is out of 2 Timothy chapter 3. And if you would turn with me just a little bit to your right in your Bible, I want to read some of these signs that are given to us in 2 Timothy chapter 3. So just a few pages to the right. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. And I think that as we read this, you'll see that the shoe fits. So 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, and from such people turn away. What God's declaring here is these things are going to ramp up as we approach the day of the Lord. That this is going to define people, define culture, more and more as we get closer and closer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So God wants us to be aware of the times and the seasons. The church of Thessalonica, this early church, they were aware of the signs leading up to the coming of the Lord. We need to be aware of the signs leading up to the coming of the Lord. So let's go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and look at verse 2. It says, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Does a thief announce his arrival? Send you a text and says, Tonight, about 2 o'clock, I'm going to come rob you. The whole thing that makes a thief effective is they take you by surprise, right? So for a Christ-rejecting world, the coming of the Lord is going to take them by surprise. But we're being encouraged, don't let Christ's coming take you by surprise. Be prepared for it. And that's what Jesus taught us. He said, live your life in such a way where you're looking for my soon return. That we're found doing the will of the Lord when Christ returns. So others get caught off guard, but I'm ready. Christ's coming doesn't come into my life like a thief in the night. I've been prepared. I've been ready for the coming of Jesus Christ. And verse 3 says, For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. 
So there is this tension a little bit in Bible prophecy leading up to the rapture and the second coming of Jesus Christ. On one side, you have the signs that there'll be things like earthquakes and famines and people fighting with each other, wars, rumors of war, perilous times that we read of. Doesn't sound like peace and safety, does it, when we read of those signs? But then you have this section of scripture that says that there is going to be a sense of peace and safety. So how do those two go together where there's such turmoil, but yet there's a sense of peace and safety, but yet somehow we live in this dichotomy all the time, don't we? Like tonight, there's wars, there's famines, there's these tremendous things that we read about in the Bible, but most people sit in a place and they go, I feel pretty peaceful. I feel a sense of safety. You spend time over in Israel, and there's chaos in their country and all around them, but you sit down and have a cup of coffee, and you go, man, I feel extremely safe and peaceful. So somehow, in the midst of these signs and the craziness, there's also going to be this sense of peace and safety, and then sudden destruction is going to come upon them. The analogy here is a pregnant woman who is, who is laboring. And ladies, you know, if you've had children, that there's a point in labor where you can't stop it, right? You, you can't escape it. You're going to have a child. And that's the idea here uh, with the coming of the Lord and these signs. It gets to a place where it's happening. In verse 4, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day does not overtake you as a thief. And that phrase, not in darkness, is a theme of this chapter. We are sons and daughters of light. We're in the light. We're living in the understanding that Christ is at hand. So the coming of the Lord is not going to happen in our lives as a thief in the night. So then this brings a challenge. Am I awake spiritually? And I am, am I awake to the second coming of Jesus Christ? In Philippians 4 it says, Let your gentleness be made known to all men because the Lord is at hand. Like that's how much we believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ that we're of calm and gentle spirit because we know that we're getting close to the day of the Lord. We're getting close to the rapture of the church. We're getting close to the tribulation period that's described in Revelation. We're getting close to Christ coming back to the earth and ruling and reigning for a thousand years so I can be at peace. I can be in a place uh, of, of gentleness. If Christ were to return, would it take us by surprise? Is my life reflecting this reality of what I believe about the second coming of Jesus Christ? I've shared this before, but for some reason, the rapture and the second coming of Jesus Christ is something that I can lose sight of in my personal life. There's sometimes I'm really aware of the second coming of Jesus Christ, and there's other times where it does seem very distant where it does seem very far away. And if I were honest, I'd say, I'm not living my life today in anticipation that Christ could return. In verse 5 is an identity statement. It says, you are sons of light, sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So this isn't saying try harder to be sons and daughters of light. It's saying you are sons and daughters of light. I've heard a story of a dad as his kids would leave every day in the morning or he would leave to go off to work. He'd look at his kids, give them a hug and say, remember who you are. It's identity. And so much of our relationship with the Lord is 
based on who we are in him. This, this is who we are. I am a son of light. You, you are a daughter of light. That, that's an identity statement that God has given to you. Why is that? Because the light of the world, Jesus Christ, lives inside of you. So, so this is who we are. It's expressed in verse 5. And so you're not of the night. You're not of the darkness. Our, our lifestyle is different than those that don't know Christ as their Savior. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But those who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet of hope of salvation. Paul's using an analogy here of dark and and light. Light being Christ and the things of God and your life being found in that. Darkness being of compromise and sin. And he's saying, man, when people tend to get drunk, they do it at night. You know, a lot of times people try to convince me that hanging out in the clubs and hanging out in the bars till two in the morning is, is a great thing for their relationship with the Lord and an impact on a Christ-rejecting world. And I'm like, really? Because all the stories that I hear of are heartbreak that happen at Friday night at two in the morning at the clubs and the bars, right? And that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, that's not who you are. So why is your life now being found in the darkness? Don't, don't allow that to be defined there. Be awake. Be awake to the fact that Christ could, could return and live your life in the light. And this is how he describes living in the light. He says, you are of the day, so be sober. Not just speaking about not being drunk, but it's a mindset. Instead of having big highs and big lows, is that we're even keeled. We're sober, sober-minded, and that defines us. And then putting on the breastplate of faith and of love and the hope of salvation. If you're familiar with the armor of God in Ephesians 6, this doesn't completely line up with that in, in the sense of it, if it's not an identical match of, of the armor. So that teaches us that the armor of God is an analogy that Paul uses of spiritual warfare, but you can use different attributes of Christ to relate back to, to the armor of God. He uses it in a little bit different way here. He says the breastplate is faith and love. He adds love. And the helmet of the hope of salvation and the expectation of, of salvation. And I, and I like that. Protect your mind with the expectation of salvation. Isn't that good? So I'm going through my days as I'm battling my thoughts, going, I'm going to be home with the Lord. I know that I am going uh, to be saved. Before we leave this place of thinking about being awake spiritually and are we in the light, are we, are we in the darkness, turn, turn with me to Romans chapter 13, because Paul uses this illustration as well of light and darkness and being asleep and being awake in Romans 13, verse 11 through 14. Romans 13, verse 11. And do this knowing the time, and now it's high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than we first believed. Isn't that true? The night is far spent, the day is at hand, and let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill 
its lusts. It seems that Satan, our flesh, this world, its system, has a tendency to just rock us back to sleep spiritually, right? Where we're awake to God, awake in his love, awake to the impact that he would have for us, the war that we're in. And as we continue in life, we very quietly get comfortable, get to a place where we're complacent, and all of a sudden, we're back asleep again. What would it look like, potentially, for someone to be asleep in a very important situation? Maybe there's a plague that goes over a city, and all of a sudden, a a city is dying because of this plague. And there's a doctor who's at home, asleep, with the remedy in his pocket. He knows the remedy, he's got the remedy, but for some reason, he's asleep in the hour of need. He's asleep in the hour of urgency. Maybe there's a man that's on death row, and he's been convicted and gone through the whole process, and he's days away from being executed, but there's someone who's home asleep that's got the evidence in his pocket that he's innocent, that somebody else did the crime, but he's asleep. He's asleep in this very important hour. We're in Christ. We belong to the Lord. And so Satan knows that he can't take that from us. But what can he take from us? Our effectiveness. He would love for believers to be in a place where we lose sight of the sense of urgency. For Paul, in these sections of scriptures, he's saying, no time. No time. Understand that time is short. Your time's short, but also the time for the whole entire world is short. Christ is going to return, and there's a real battle. There is darkness, and there is light. And are we living in God's light? Both sections he mentions, putting on the armor of God, being engaged in the war that that God has for us. I personally think it's an exciting time to be a believer. I don't know when Christ is going to rapture the church. I don't know when the second coming of Jesus Christ is going to be. But I can say this with absolute certainty. We are closer than anybody else has ever been before. (laughs) Right? We're closer than Spurgeon, closer than Moody, closer than Chuck Smith, because we are living in the current, in the present. And if God does tarry, then guess what? The generation behind us is going to be closer than we were, you know? And so we're always going to that place of saying, Man, time is short, time is valuable, so God, wake me up. I want to be alive to you and alive to the purposes that you have for my life. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9, it says, For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The wrath of God. God has not appointed us to wrath. Jesus took the wrath for us upon the cross. That's the first application of verse 9. Apart from Christ, we are appointed to wrath. So if you're having a bad day, a bad week, a bad month, a bad year, a bad decade, rejoice in this. If you're in Christ, you're not appointed to wrath. Jesus took the wrath for you. Also, the tribulation period in Revelation 7 is described as the wrath of the Lamb. As you read this section of Scripture in chapter 4 and chapter 5, It's talking about the day of the Lord, when Christ brings judgment. It's talking about the rapture of the church. And here Paul, I think, is making a statement about our salvation, 
that God has taken the wrath for us, but also about our position in the rapture. The rapture taking place prior to the wrath of the Lamb, prior to the tribulation, because we're not appointed unto wrath. We're appointed unto salvation. And thankfully, we're not in that place. And ultimately, the Lord knows. And there are those different positions like we talked about last week. But I think verse 9 is a, an indicator in my mind towards a pre-tribulation rapture view. In verse 10, it says, Who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. So Paul's using sleep in two contexts. First, it's that you're asleep spiritually. And now he's talking about death in verse 10. He's saying whether you're alive or dead, we shall live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you are doing. I found myself saying this week, man, this person needs to get saved because they're missing out on the body of Christ. The body of Christ has so much to offer them. And that's secondary, you know? The real reason that a person needs to get saved is because, just like we talked about, we're objects of God's wrath. But secondary, when we're saved, we're plugged into the body of Christ. Isn't it incredible to have the kind of comfort and edification from Christ and from other believers. This is the role of the body. This is the joy of being in relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ, is they comfort us, they pray with us, and they edify us. And, and this is part of the purpose of us gathering together. I love seeing you guys do that one with another, where you take the time to pray for someone, encourage someone, pray for somebody in the foyer, you text a brother and sister in Christ that you know is discouraged. Provide that comfort and that edification. This comfort and edification to give to other believers is for all of us, not just pastors and teachers, not just elders. We're all in that place where we get the privilege of ministering to believers and receiving from, from believers. It's a real joy. And the Church of Thessalonica is doing it. You guys are doing it. In verse 12, and it says, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. First of all, Paul says, recognize those who labor among you. Not somebody that just has a title. You know, he's really saying, look at the person that does the service. That they're really laboring in your midst for your spiritual well-being. And then the one who's over you in the Lord and admonish you, this speaks of spiritual leadership that God has placed in our lives. And that's another part of the function of the church is that God puts spiritual leaders in, in our lives for the purpose of admonishing us. And we all need that. And we all should, should have that. And so as the Lord has provided those pastors and, and elders in your life, the scripture says, then recognize them if they're laboring and they're admonishing you and encouraging you, then esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace amongst yourself. Paul's saying this is good for your, your spiritual well-being to see your pastors and your elders in, in that light. In verse 14, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, that is, out of order, comfort the faint-hearted. This is someone who is timid, where they have lack of courage. Uphold the weak and be patient with all. Don't you like that? There's a lot to chew on in that verse. And again, this is for everybody in the body. 
we all get to fulfill verse 14, just like we get to comfort and edify. So if you see somebody who's clearly out of order in Scripture, they're clearly in disobedience to God's Word, and they're a brother or sister in Christ, because you love them, then what does Scripture tell you to do? It says to warn those who are unruly. Warn those who are in in that place. Go and give them that necessary encouragement. How do you deal with someone who's faint-hearted? You comfort them. You know, that, that's if you, not that place of, hey, you suck it up, but provide some comfort to them because their, their heart is in that place of, of discouragement. They have enough resources for discouragement, so provide the comfort. Come alongside them, put an arm around them, uphold the weak. We're all weak at different points in our lives. Everyone, every single one of us, and we need the body of Christ to uphold the weak. What really stood out to me is the end of verse 14. Be patient with everybody. Be patient with all. So if they're faint-hearted, if they're unruly, you know, be patient. Patience is endurance. Patience is gentleness. Patience is, is kindness. See them for who they are in the Lord and what they will be in the Lord. Be, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. I think this is one of the first verses I ever memorized, thanks to my mom. Don't return evil for evil. Because as you're a kid, and you're growing up with your siblings, my older brother and my younger sister, what's tendency of human flesh? You wronged me, so I'm going to wrong you. You did evil to me, so I'm going to do evil to you. Many times we want more than restitution. That's why the the law says eye for an eye. That's justice. But if someone takes out one of our eyes, what do we want? Both of theirs, right? So we're going to not only return evil for evil, but we're going to amp it up. We're going to multiply it. And it takes great trust in God, dependence upon the Lord, to not return evil for evil. Jesus took this a step further, didn't he? He said, bless those who persecute you. Do good to those who mistreat you. Pray for those who come against you. So he's actually asking us to bless those who commit evil against us. And evil is a pretty strong word, isn't it? If we're honest, how many times have we had somebody be downright evil to us? It's a lot less than we think. But we will probably all have the opportunity a handful of times to respond to someone who decides to be just downright evil to us. Don't be evil back. Pray for them. Do good to them. And then we're called here to pursue peace. That's both good for yourself and for all. Can we agree on this? Can we give this an amen? Peace is better for all. So if peace is possible, pursue peace. As much as depends on us, let's live peaceable with all men. You guys got your highlighters out? Underliners? These next few verses are ones to to underline. Rejoice always. Could it be that God really meant that? Always. You know? He could have said rejoice 60% of the time. 80% of the time. Rejoice always. Philippians tells us rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. 
regardless of our circumstances, we can choose to have joy in the Lord. Joy is not happiness. Happiness is based on circumstances. I got a raise. I'm happy. Joy is, I took a pay cut, and God is good, and I continue to rejoice in the Lord. Joy in the Lord is no matter what, in sickness or in health, in prosperity or in poverty, to say, I am taking joy in the Lord. What we're going to read here in these next few exhortations, I think, is the very practical way to be alive spiritually. It's the choice that we make, the decision that we make, not based on our feelings, but who we know God to be. Merciful, gracious, kind, just, faithful. My name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I'm choosing to rejoice in those things. I'm taking joy in those things. No matter what our personality's like, no matter if we tend to look at the glass half full or half empty, for an optimist or a pessimist, we can choose to have a joyful attitude in the Lord. I don't think this is fake. I don't think it's just the, the trite things to, to say to make it appear like we have joy in the Lord. But it's a deep sense in my heart of hearts, no matter what my circumstance is, that I'm choosing to take joy in my God. That I'm choosing to thank Him for who He is. And sometimes those moments are filled with tears, aren't they? Sometimes those moments are filled with Man, there's a lot of pain here, and this is really difficult, but I know that my God is good. I would encourage you, and the Bible encourages you, it encourages me tonight, no matter what's going on in your life, tonight, choose to rejoice. Don't wait till you feel it. Don't wait till Billy just plays your favorite song, and you're like, oh, this is it, you know? But choose. Again, God, you're good. And so I'm rejoicing in you. I'm taking joy in you. Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. This is unbroken communion with God. There's a small book that I would encourage you to pick it up if you, if you get a chance. Write it down if you haven't read it. If it's been a while since you've read it, it's called Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. There's a man who his primary responsibility was to wash dishes. And in the midst of washing these dishes, he made it his aim to have unbroken fellowship with God. To be in a place where he was talking with the Lord. Hearing from God, expressing his heart to God. Giving praise, giving intercession, unbroken communion to the Lord. So this teaches us a lot about prayer. This short little verse, pray without ceasing. Because there are, are those times where we are able to get alone with the Lord, and we should, and be able to focus on Him with undivided attention. We see that in the life of Jesus as He communed with the Father. But our prayer life doesn't stop there. In the midst of interacting with people at work, interacting with our families, even being in church right now, we can be having unbroken communion with God. We see this in the life of Nehemiah. He's a cupbearer in a foreign land. Israel's been taken captive. God is moving, and Ezra was able to lead a small group back to Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple. The temple, however, was extremely vulnerable because there were no walls around the temple. Nehemiah hears and gets news of the state of the temple in Jerusalem, and he begins to pray for three or four months faithfully unto the Lord. 
I'm sure in some of these undivided, focused ways. We know he prayed and he fasted. But he also was fellowshipping with God throughout his day because as we get to chapter 2 of Nehemiah, he makes a decision to be sad in the king's presence, which he'd never done before. Apparently the king did not enjoy sad servants in his presence. Your job was to always put on a smiley face. And so he chooses to show his sorrow over Jerusalem and the king says to Nehemiah, what's going on? Why, why are you sad? And the scripture tells us in that moment that Nehemiah prayed. Now, Nehemiah didn't say, hey, could you give me a second? I, I need to go get on my knees in the hallway. You know, it's what I call a flare prayer. In that moment, I don't, don't think the king even heard him. He cried out to God and said, God, this is a really big moment. Would you give me favor with the king? God heard that prayer. And the king says, Nehemiah, I want you to go back. I want you to build the wall. And in fact, I'm going to fund it. I'm going to send you. I want you to do this. And that's fellowship with the Lord throughout the day. God, you're good. God, thank you for who you are. Would you really help me with this situation? God, I'm about ready to lose my temper. And I know what happens when I lose my temper. My mouth is about ready to run wild. Would you please, would you please help me? seems like, God, you're doing something in this person's heart and in this life. I sense that they're broken. There's a lot of sorrow in their life. Would you please show me a way that I could, could share your love with them? So it's just walking through your day, walking and talking with the Lord, fellowshipping with God. We get a picture of this with Enoch in the Old Testament. Not much written about his life. It says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not. The Lord just took him up. Some have put it this way, that Enoch was closer to God's house than his own house. So the Lord just said, Enoch, why don't you come on home? Without even him dying and him, him passing away, he walked with God. He had unbroken communion and fellowship with the Lord. Pray without ceasing. Practically, when you have a cold this time of year, and you get that tickle in your throat from the drainage, and you just cough all night long, all day long, that's an example of something that's not ceasing in a very annoying way. And in a very beautiful way, we get the Holy Spirit stirring us to fellowship with God, to spend time with, the God, with God, to have that unbroken fellowship. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Notice it says, in everything, give thanks doesn't necessarily say for everything give thanks so in everything in every situation to give thanks to the lord do you guys remember last week we talked about the will of god the will of god is to walk in sexual integrity to learn how to possess our vessels for honor also the will of god is to be thankful Charles Spurgeon has a quote of this section of scripture, and he says, when joy and prayer are married, so you've got joy in verse 16, prayer in verse 17, when they're married, their firstborn child is the attitude of gratitude. So when I'm in a place where I'm joyful in the Lord, and I'm praying without ceasing, you know what the natural byproduct's going to be? Thanksgiving. God, you're good being thankful to the Lord. In everything, give thanks. This is the will of God. So when I'm not thankful, I'm not in the will of God. 
How many days have I gone through my life not in the will of God because I'm not thankful? In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God. It goes on and it says, don't quench the spirit. So you think about what's quenching. What does it mean to quench? Quench means to put out, to put out a fire. You know, if you've got a fire on the stove, what's the best way to put out a fire that's in a pan? You put a lid over it and the lid cuts off the oxygen, the supply of the fire, and, and it quenches it. And so what do we do sometimes to the flame of the Holy Spirit in our lives? The move of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we quench it. We, we throw cold water, ice cold water, onto the move of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Why is it with the Holy Spirit that we get afraid of Him leading our life? Is it because we've experienced some bad teaching about the Holy Spirit? If you allow the Holy Spirit to take control of your life, you might all of a sudden start rolling around on the floor and barking uncontrollably like a dog. And this is the move of the Holy Spirit in your life. So I'm not sure if I want the Holy Spirit to, to, to lead in my life. The Holy Spirit's going to make me do some kind of weird thing. Really? Do you, do you really believe that? Is that what you see in the life of Christ? Absolutely not. There's nothing to be afraid of the Holy Spirit. May I suggest to us tonight the reason we don't want the Holy Spirit to take control of our lives is because we're afraid of losing control. When it really comes down to it, I want control. I I, want to call the shots and to really get to that place of surrender to where I'm saying, okay, Holy Spirit, I want you to have control. I'm not going to quench or stop the work that you're doing in my life. When we look at the Holy Spirit... We see that the Holy Spirit's a person. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can quench the Holy Spirit. We can communicate to the Holy Spirit, you're not welcome here. You can't do this work in my life. But we also then, on the flip side, can have in our hearts an environment where the Holy Spirit's welcome, where the Holy Spirit's not quenched, where the Holy Spirit can move through freely. I think sometimes in churches... In a body of believers, there can be a sense where we just quench the Holy Spirit, where we're not open to the leading and working of the Holy Spirit in our, in our lives. I love verse 21. It's the balance to, to verse 20 and to verse 19. It says, do not despise prophecy, test all things, and hold fast to what is good. Prophecy is a little bit weird because it has to do with the, the future, And there is the the gift of prophecy, God working in a supernatural way. And I'll be honest, like if someone gives me a word of prophecy for my life, you know what my attitude is? Well, we'll wait and see, right? If that's from the Lord, then it's going to come to pass. If if not, you've just had too many fruit loops, you know? But yet, there's an aspect of this where God says right here in his word, don't despise prophecy. Don't, don't despise God sending someone in your life that can speak a word of prophecy in your life to glorify Christ, to encourage you. I think if someone is sharing a word of prophecy, it's going to line up with Scripture, the character of Jesus Christ. God tells us that he hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. So many times when someone's sharing a word of prophecy, it, it's always fearful. This is the word of the Lord for the believers at Rocky Mountain Calvary. 
he's going to fry your faces off. Prepare. Wow. What a blessing, you know? And And judgment's real, and I think that there could be a warning of judgment. But if it's really from the Lord, then guess what? There's not going to be the spirit of fear. Here, these tough times are coming, but God's going to be faithful. Hey, there's this compromise in your life, but God is giving you an opportunity to repent and receive refreshment from the Lord. So be open to words of prophecy, but then also test all things. Test it all and hold fast to what is good. What verse 21 is telling us is there may be a sermon, and a sermon is from man. And you test this sermon that you're hearing, and 80% of it is biblical and good, and you hold fast to that, but 20%'s not. You throw that out. As you're reading a book and you go through it, there may be parts of it, you go, man, this doesn't line up with Scripture. So you let that go, and you, you hold fast to what is good. Someone gives you a word of prophecy, you say, okay, well, let's wait and see. I'm not sure about this part, but I know that this part is good. They said that Jesus is God. They said that Jesus is good. They, they said this, it lines up with scripture, so I'm holding on to, to what is good. It's our responsibility to test all things and then to hold on to what is good. Verse 22 is abstain from every form of evil or abstain from the appearance of evil. God wants us to get so far away from evil that we're also looking at the form of evil or the appearance of evil. This is not necessarily evil, but man, it sure appears to be evil in the eyes of everyone. And so I'm going to abstain from that. I'm going to avoid that. Don't you find these to be so encouraging, what we just read? Rejoice always. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. These phrases of truth are life-changing if we lay hold of them and apply them. The book ends in verse 23 through verse 28. Now may the God of peace, he's, he's the God of peace, he provides peace, he is peace, himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're awake to the Lord. We're awake to his return. So God himself will complete the good work that he started in us. And he will sanctify us completely. He'll set us apart completely. He'll continue that work of holiness in our lives. Isn't it comforting to know that sanctification is his work in our lives? He's doing that work in me. He's doing that work in you. And notice how he divides our person, your whole spirit, your whole soul and body. When it's declared that we're made in the image of God, what does that mean? God is a triune being, Father, Son, Spirit. You're a triune being. From the Bible, we know that. You have a spirit. You have a soul. You have a body. So you're made in the image of God. Animals don't have a spirit. They've got a body. They've got somewhat of a soul, but they don't have a they don't have a spirit. There, there's a mind and a, an emotion and a will to some level, but there's something different about humanity because God has given us a spirit. He's given us a soul. He's given a body. And God wants to preserve blameless all three. He wants our body to be preserved blameless, 
but also our spirit and our soul. He's caring for your soul tonight. He's caring for your spirit tonight. He's caring for your body tonight. He's preserving your body. In Ephesians 5, you guys remember a few months ago when we read in Ephesians 5 about husbands and wives and how Christ loves the church and that Christ is preparing the church, the bride, to be spotless at the marriage feast. So, so here's Jesus and his role in, his, in our lives is he's purifying us. He's sanctifying us. He's caring for us so that we can be prepared for that moment when we enter into eternity. We're prepared for the coming of the Lord. Verse 24 is awesome. It says, he who calls you is faithful who will also do it. He's faithful. He called you. He saved you. He's going to do it. He, he's called us to joy. He's called us to prayer. He's called us to not quench the Spirit. He's called us to be holy, sanctified. So he's going to do it. It's his work in and through, through our lives. Paul says, brethren, pray for us. Pray for us. I think we would all encourage people to pray for us. You know, we're praying for others and also, man, we love to be prayed for. We need people praying for us as well in our lives. If Paul asks for prayer, we should be asking for prayer as well. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. This is the customary greeting to this day in the Middle East. The equivalent for us is, man, greet each other with a holy hug. Greet each other with a holy handshake. Dudes, if you start going around here greeting everybody with a holy kiss, we got to sit down and talk, you know. So, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. So it was written to the church of Thessalonica, but it was to be read for, for all. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Amen. So the challenge is be awake. Are you sleepwalking? You know, are we in that place where we're, we're awake? Know the times and seasons leading up to the second coming Christ. Walk in the light. Don't allow that to just be a, a concept, but in a reality in our lives. I want to walk in the light. Apply these exhortations. Church tonight, right now in this moment, which one, two, three of these exhortations is the Holy Spirit really speaking to you tonight? Is it rejoice always? Is it pray without ceasing? Is it don't quench the Holy Spirit and everything give thanks? If it is, note it, mark it, and take it with you. We should read the Bible with our shoes on, church. We should, we should read it with anticipation of saying, God, I want to apply this. I want to go home and I want to live this out. And then finally, trust in his faithfulness. He who calls you is faithful. He will also do it. So with that, let's stand and pray together. Jesus, we do ask that you would wake us up to the reality of your second coming, of your reign, of the day of the Lord, of the rapture of the church, and that we would see that time is valuable, time is precious, that we've got a job to do, a calling that you've placed upon our lives. We'd be fully engaged with you and fully engaged in the war that we find ourselves in. Father, where we're asleep spiritually, would, would you wake us up? Would you stir us? 
Would you stir our spiritual conscience and bring us into deeper fellowship with you? God, it's a high calling here at the, these exhortations. And we want to embrace them through the power of the Holy Spirit. So right now we rejoice in you. We thank you that you're our father, you're our dad. Abba, Father, thank you for the relationship that we have with you. Jesus, thank you that you are our mediator, our intercessor, that we're able to come right into your throne. We're robed in your righteousness that you died for us and rose again. Holy Spirit, thank you that you know us better than we know ourselves, that you're our comforter, our peace. We don't want to quench you in our lives. Take us deeper in prayer. Take us deeper in fellowship with you to pray without ceasing. And right now, in our circumstances, in joy or sorrow, we give thanks. We are confident that you are using these things for your glory and you're deepening our character. So, Father, we love you. We want to draw near to you in communion. We pray that you would meet us afresh.